when somebody says, oh, Molinism is just too philosophical, I say, well, what do you mean by philosophical? Do you mean it's too logical? Because truth and logic are inextricably linked. You cannot have one without the other. And so if Christianity is true, it will be extremely logical. It'll be, I mean, uh, it, it will be too logical if, if it is. I mean, that's like saying Christianity is too true. What does that even mean? Uh, <laughs> Hi, welcome to The Church Split. My name is Will, and you guys know what we do here. We help people escape their echo chambers, learn something new biblically, and hopefully you guys walk away learning something from us. Today, I have a very special guest with us today. Dr. Tim Stratton. He is the author of Human Freedom, Divine Knowledge, and Mere Molinism. It is probably the best book I have read on Molinism. I'm not sure if he wants that flattery, but I'm going to give it to him anyway. Uh, if you guys haven't read it, please go ahead and read it. It is fantastic, and it might actually help you uh, try to wrestle that big question, how do you justify man's free will and God's sovereignty? Well, this book does a great job at tackling that, and it first approaches it from a historical perspective, and then completely from a philosophical, theological perspective. So anyway, Dr. Tim Stratton, how you doing, man? Hey, Will, I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on The Church Split. It's an honor to be here, and thank you for the kind words. Uh, yeah, no problem. And it looks <laughs> thank you for writing the book. Uh, the, uh, thank you also. By, are you, like, hunting elk right now up in your cabin? I feel like people might want to know why <laughs> there's, like, a dead deer in the back. That's right, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's crazy. Uh, I normally record in my church's studio. My church, I have a great church, and they support me. Uh, and you know, they give me free access to the studio. They've got all their lighting and you know, it's great. Well, you know, we're, we're recording in the evening and it's never used at that time. And I show up and it's being used my bad. I should have checked it out. So anyway, they've got this outdoor ish hunting room here that I just ran into. And I said, Hey, this is going to be my studio today. So it's okay. You you, well, you I, look I apologize. Yeah, sorry, I'm not really out in the wilderness on some big expedition right now. That that would have been much cooler. You're yeah, you're kind of letting me down. I was really hoping. I was like, dude, this guy does it all. He he's out there like hunting elk and bear and wrestling wolves to the ground. This guy's awesome. Then I was super disappointed. So it's okay. I will go ahead and deal with it. So anyway, thank you so much for being on. It honestly, it means it means a lot. I have used your website many times at research projects and other things I've done. And so just one of the many people that you might not know that your ministry has uh, impacted and helped. So I appreciate that. And especially especially because you do approach things exegetically and biblically and also philosophically consistently, which is something that I appreciate because you actually are not afraid to take that logical conclusion and actually run it to where it's supposed to go right. uh, instead of coming up with caveats to avoid it. So I really appreciate that about your work. So for those of those of uh, our listeners who do not know, uh, who is Dr. Tim Stratton? What's your background, man? Uh, well, I mean, uh, I was raised a uh, Christian, um, uh, you know, or I should say I was raised in an awesome Christian family. Uh, one of my first memories is my great grandpa dying when I was almost four years old. So I was still three and, you know, I didn't even know what death was at the time, but my mom shared, uh, shared the gospel with me and told me uh, about um, how my great grandpa 
how he's a, how his soul is no longer in his body and his soul is now with Jesus. And I, and, and she did it in such a great way. She explained it. I understood it. Uh, and I understood the gospel, uh, at, at three years old, almost four years old, old. And, uh, and I remember praying and asking, uh, Jesus, uh, into my heart. I really didn't know what that meant specifically. I kind of pictured him actually living in my heart at the time. Uh, but I think God honored that prayer. Um, I went on a wild ride, you know, uh, for, uh, growing up, I guess, but, um, uh, I guess eventually I felt God calling me into ministry. And so I started youth ministry in 98, then in, you know, things were going great, but then in 2008, uh, 10 years later, I saw many students, um, struggling with their faith. Uh, now I'll just say, you know, I was in youth ministry for quite a while. I think, uh, eventually left youth ministry in 2015 when I started free thinking ministries. And, uh, but when I started youth ministry, I was, uh, I was a Calvinist, a five point Calvinist who also affirmed exhaustive divine determinism. I abbreviate that as ed, E-D-D. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So uh, a lot of people are surprised to know that uh, I was uh, an, a staunch Calvinist willing to, to fight over it. I was what you would call a cage stage Calvinist. And by that, they mean it's better for this guy to be in a cage <laughs> than to be out in public. <laughs> so uh, yeah, that was me. And uh, yeah, so that's my background, I guess. That's, that's, you see back there, there it goes again, the ex- exhaustive divine determinism, you taking things to their natural logical conclusion. I, yeah. <laughs> why I appreciate that. So you, all right, you worked, so you were raised in a Christian home. You said you went on a wild ride or something for a little bit, yeah. and then you go into youth ministry and your youth ministry, you were in there for 10 years, you said? In well, youth ministry? I mean, I started in 98, uh, and uh, yeah. No, I was I was a youth pastor at this. Uh, my last gig was a ten year gig, basically. Okay. Um, All right. But yeah, so from nineteen ninety eight to two thousand fifteen, I was doing youth ministry almost the whole time. In ninety eight, uh, I was seven years old. Ooh, making me feel old, man. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, oh, so, uh, what is your, so, okay. So that's, so you were raised in a Christian home. Did you ever go through a period of doubts or anything like that? Or was it just, uh, you know, I remember being really little and asking questions. Um, sometimes I'd ask my, and you know, I remember asking my mom why I should think that, you know, why should Christians think the Bible is true, uh, when other religions have their books. And I remember my mom saying, hey, Russ, you know, talking to my dad, will you come here and explain to Tim why we know the Bible's true? And uh, he gave an answer. I, I remember some things about the Dead Sea Scrolls and other things like that at the time. Uh, I didn't understand everything my dad was saying to me. But at that point in my life, you know, being seven years old, I was like, oh, OK, as long as somebody's got an answer. Yeah, and really, uh, <laughs> yeah, that was good enough for me at that time. Um, I never really went through a period of doubt until uh, 2008 when uh, some of the uh, students, high school and college students, started bringing uh, questions and objections to me, uh, objections to Christianity. And it kind of shook me. I mean, I kind of knew, I always, you know, I talk about this inner witness of the Holy Spirit. I knew Christianity was true, but man, the students even got me questioning that, you know, thinking it was indigestion or something. 
And, uh, <laughs> and I was like, man, you know, they really were, were rocking me. Uh, and, and I went home and I prayed uh, after, you know, I, I'll say this. When I was a youth pastor, I saw a growing number of high school and college students losing their faith and, and many of them becoming atheists right in front of my face, right in front of my eyes. Right. And so when I realized that I couldn't answer their questions and their objections uh, that they were bringing to me, it, it shook my faith. Um, I, it didn't wreck it by any means, but it shook it, if that makes sense. And, and on top of that, though, I felt this conviction uh, from, from God, I felt like the Holy spirit was convicting me. You know, I went home, uh, one night after a young man told me that, uh, he'd completely, he'd rejected his faith. He'd been in my Bible study for a couple of years. He was 16 years old, junior at the time. Wow. Uh, and, and his dad was an elder in the church. Um, great Christian family. And he said, no, I'm an atheist now. And he started bringing me really good objections. At least I thought they were good at the time. And, and, uh, so I went home that night after youth group had a horrible night and I just started praying <laughs> and I felt like God said, look, Tim, if you're going to, if you're going to be a shepherd, you know, if a youth pastor is a shepherd. If you're going to be a shepherd, you better learn how to defend the sheep. And, uh, you know, I think, uh, God used the, the movie, the Patriot with Mel Gibson. There's a line in there <laughs> when, when the pastor is like, sometimes the pastor's got to defend the sheep or something like that. Um, or sometimes a shepherd has to has to defend the sheep, and and that line really stuck with me. And I felt like that's what God was saying to me um, that I had to learn how to defend the sheep. And in this case, um, what I was saying was that the, the wolves coming after the sheep were atheists with really good objections. And you know, Paul says that we destroy objections raised against the knowledge of God in Second Corinthians ten five. But I sure wasn't doing that, and so. <laughs> Uh, I felt what, like, wow, okay, I'm. Uh, what kind of a pastor am I if I'm if I'm not living up to scripture here? And so, anyway, I started a journey. I didn't know anything about physics or philosophy or anything like that, but that's what all these objections. You know, I was looking at everything from scientists to other philosophers, and I was like, man, you got the wrong guy. I can't do this. But I started uh, watching William Lane Craig videos primarily and listening to his podcasts reading his books. And, and in fact, then I, I enrolled at Biola university so I could learn from him in person as well as, you know, some other, uh, awesome apologists, philosophers, and theologians. And, you know, needless to say that, uh, well, I'll just say my life has been utterly transformed by this journey. I uh, recently finished, uh, uh, PhD studies and, uh, focus on theology and systematic theology. And, uh, the book that you've got is, um, primarily based on my doctoral dissertation. I've added more, uh, a little bit more to the book. Um, and so, yeah, it's been a crazy wild ride that God's had me on, but I've loved every second. And uh, I, I forgot what it's like to be bored. I haven't been bored in years. So you know, that's kind of cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah well, it's, it's actually, it's funny how apologetics works that way. It's like, as soon as you start to, that, it's like this giant hole that you first, that kind of just tempts you. You're like, Oh, what's over here. And suddenly you're falling and it hasn't stopped. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. No, that's so basically you got into, it's funny. You got into apologetics for a similar reason that I did, but mine wasn't so much for the doubts of the, of like some of the kids were, that were coming to me. It was just the fact that kids started just asking smaller questions. And I was like, I don't, 
I don't know if I have a full, well-rounded answer for that, besides the theological one, which is like fallen nature, those sorts of things, that doesn't answer the, the philosophical question uh, that they're digging at. So I remember I was uh, pastoring and I went back to that night and I was, and it was this whole thing. I'm like, I'm going to get some answers and I just want to yeah. make sure I know everything they could throw at me. The first person I found was Ravi Zacharias and then it mm -hmm. went downhill and then it was, and then I found uh, William Lane Craig and that was, uh, that was, yep. Then I was in hook, line and sinker. And then that actually became one of the biggest passions I had in ministry was to answer people's questions. And we actually, because we did like an apologetics Wednesday night conference for a while that where we just talked about the proofs of the new Testament. And I started just going through those. We actually saw one girl who was an ardent atheist and she was a child that was just dragged to church. She actually got saved through that. So it was pretty, pretty powerful stuff. And I just remember I had so many of my old colleagues telling me that I'm throwing out the, the, the word of God for the wisdom of man. And I was like, no, this is, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just this, <laughs> all you can really do is scoff at such an objection. Right. So, um, yeah, well, I appreciate the fact that you uh, were one of the few people, I feel like pastors more and more need to get equipped with apologetics. Would you agree with that? <laughs> like, Oh, please. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's like so many yeah. of them, it's like they're good counselors or they might know their Bible, but it's like, my uh, word, we, so many pastors just are not equipped to defend the faith, at least somewhat, at least be slightly right. equipped to handle some of the common objections. So right. uh, anyway, so that's how you got into apologetics. And so what got you to your fascination with Molinism? Like I find <laughs> that to be, uh, it's, oh, I love apologetics, but I'm going to focus on divine knowledge. Like, okay, yeah. that's different. So not the resurrection case, not the moral case or teleological or anything like that. It was Molinism. So why mm -hmm. Molinism. Well, uh, in the last chapter of my book, it's called The Apologetic Significance of Molinism. And, and so I, I go and I, I show how almost every argument that the apologist typically goes to, you know what Dr. Craig calls the cumulative case. So I would say almost every argument is either, I, I say it either assumes uh, one or all of the key ingredients of uh, either mere Molinism or, or uh, hard Molinism or uh, what I call soteriological Molinism. Um, mere Molinism simply uh, affirms two essential ingredients, and that is that humans possess libertarian free will and that God possesses middle knowledge. Uh, then I go and I uh, and describe what I call as a soteriological Molinism, and you get that once you affirm that uh, God is a maximally great being, and that includes um, omnibenevolence and the, uh, the God's perfect love for all people. Uh, but uh, anyway, in the last chapter, I show how everything from the Kalam to the moral argument to the free thinking argument um, to the ontological argument to the fine tuning argument, they're all related to Molinism. Uh, and, and I show how you can answer the problem of uh, moral evil, natural evil, gratuitous evil, even divine hiddenness. Uh, uh, if Molinism is true and these other views uh, can't, they don't have access to all these apologetic arguments. Uh, in fact, um, I mean, just think about the fine tuning argument. That means that God has to have knowledge prior to his creative act of what all these uh, huge numbers describing all these constants and quantities of the initial uh, conditions of the early universe 
to guarantee a life permitting universe so that intelligent life could exist today. That's what the, the fine tuning argument's all about, uh, pointing to the intelligent design of the universe. Well, God has to know all of these things logically prior to his creative act. And, uh, and so at least if it's going to count as intelligent design. And, uh, and so this strongly suggests middle knowledge. Um, and so, yeah, I just love to show how all these different arguments are related to Molinism in one way or the other. But why, you know, why the fascination with Molinism? That's one reason. But like I said before, I used to be a staunch five-point Calvinist and an exhaustive divine determinist. Like I said, I was willing to fight. In fact, my wife and I used to fight over this subject. If you want to uh, read a sad but true and kind of funny article, <laughs> um, it's called Molinism Saves Marriages. And that's on my website <laughs> at freethinkingministries.com. Um, and I explain how uh, my wife and I used to fight over this. I mean, I, I said I was a cage state. Uh, I remember uh, James White once did a dividing line show where he said, oh, Tim Stratton wasn't, he didn't really used to be a Calvinist. Well, tell that to my wife. We fought over it. I slept on the couch. <laughs> I would sleep on the couch. Oh, wow. Be, because of Calvinism. That's the only time I've ever slept on the couch the whole night in our marriage was because we would fight <laughs> over this. And so don't tell me, definitely don't tell my wife that I, I wasn't a Calvinist. Uh, I was. Um, but so, so anyway, I, I wasn't just a five-pointer. I, I believe that God causally determines all things all the time, including not just my actions, but every single one of my thoughts and all of my beliefs. God, I believe, determined not just what I thought about, but how I thought about it. So uh, with that said, I, I guess, you know, I started debating atheists early on in my apologetic journey uh, who called themselves free thinkers. They call themselves, you know, free, the, the atheist group on the local, uh, at the local university, uh, University of Nebraska at Kearney. Uh, they had this free thinking group or the free thinker group, whatever it was called, something like that. And I started, you know, having conversations with them and having some debates with them. And I found it odd that they called the, they called themselves free thinkers but then they would argue for exhaustive determinism, not exhaustive divine determinism, but exhaustive naturalistic <laughs> determinism. Right. Because they believed uh, that uh, naturalism was true, that only nature exists, and therefore uh, a God or anything like God didn't exist. And so uh, since they thought that nature is all that exists, you know, they would say things like, you know, physics and chemistry runs the show. Um but it occurred to me, and, and so if physics and chemistry is causally, causally determining all things, then they say that we don't have free will. And it soon occurred to me that if there's no free will, then there's no free thinking. So, gotcha. it, you know, they shouldn't have, they shouldn't be, uh, they shouldn't have, they don't, they don't have logical access to their label, the free thinkers. So that's one reason why I started free thinking ministries. I said, you don't have logical access to that term, but Christians do. I'm taking it back. So uh, anyway, I started showing them the problems with their uh, deterministic view. But then it hit me that, man, I had the exact same problems uh, with exhaustive divine determinism. I had the same problems, but for different reasons. So. I, I couldn't logically and consistently uh, attack them without it turning around and causing the same problems for me. 
uh, that, that's a two-edged sword, I guess. It uh, cuts both it, ways, it, man. Both ways, yeah. So I realized, wow. Well, I think these objections to their view are good, but that means that this is a good objection against my view. And so I realized we have to find a way for this libertarian free will to work. But man, I was so committed to God's sovereignty, I wasn't going to violate that. So when I uh, when I first heard about Molinism, I was against it. I thought, no, this uh, this can't be true. I first heard Dr. Craig talk about it, and he, although I loved everything else he was doing, I thought, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna disprove this. But then, after studying it for about a year, I remember it finally clicked. I, it was during uh, a Super Bowl. I think it was the Super Bowl when uh, Green Bay won uh, the, the last one, the Packers won, and I, I was uh, talking to a pastor friend of mine. We were watching it. And I think we were discussing, and he was, he has a philosophy degree and we were discussing Molinism for the first three quarters and it hit me, it clicked. And I was like, oh, wow. I, I felt like this was just beautiful. And I saw God's sovereignty uh, and I saw human responsibility, uh, free will and responsibility is, uh, and, and it just made sense. And I remember I sat back and enjoyed the fourth quarter, <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, that's uh, yeah. I, I guess ever since then, I've been fascinated with uh, Molinism because I realized, wow, I can make sense of uh, human free will in a libertarian sense uh, that I do think Scripture teaches, and I can make sense of God's sovereignty, which I know Scripture teaches, and um, and it just makes sense of so many other things. So I think the last sentence of my book, I say something like. Uh, that is to say that Molinism is the inference to the best explanation after or after considering all the data, Molinism is uh, the inference to the best explanation or something like that. So I do I do think that and I get excited about it and I love to discuss it. Yeah, no, I actually that makes a lot more sense. I didn't know that about the atheist. Actually, I thought the free thinking argument was one of my favorite ones because and I you were on a roll. I didn't want to interrupt you, but I just always find it ironic when anyone who uh, believes in exhaustive determinism of any sort argues anything. I, right. I've always like if you deny free will, what are you doing in a debate? I uh, what was it the Braxton Hunter and the Matt Dillahunty debate? I found fascinating because Dillahunty yeah. denies free will, or at least he says you can't know, which is very Dillahunty of him, uh, and uh, and then. <laughs> You have uh, Dr. Hunter who's over there like, you're telling me I can't, I'm not choosing to snap my finger right now. And I'm like, yeah, the whole thing is if you deny free will, then why are we arguing about anything? Because yeah. you're just doing what you're programmed or have been predetermined to do it to begin with. Uh, so it's funny. You come from an exhaustive divine determinism. I come from a classic Baptist doctrine. So uh, I guess in some senses, uh, kind of reformed, a kind of Calvinistic, but also definitely like, oh, no, no, but you're, you're, it's still free will. So it was like Arminian with a little bit of Calvinism thrown in. It was weird. I, I, I <laughs> well, can never, Molinism. yeah, no. And that's the thing is for me when I was like, I'm going to reconcile us and I'm in a, a literally Brian here, uh, our producer and my co-host, he went to Calvin college. Like we live in oh, reformed yeah. pocket. And I was like, well, I need to understand this. And that's what brought me to Molinism. And I, cause I would remember I'd read things about Armenianism going, I don't, I don't agree with everything here. And then I read, uh, Tulip, and I was like, I can't get around some of these other logical inconsistencies that this creates. And of course, I was given the false dichotomy that every Christian's given either Arminianism 
or Calvinism. Right. And I'm so glad uh, for Dr. Craig's work on Molinism because I think it helped, helped, has helped bring Molinism into a limelight. And here, thereby we are having this conversation. Yeah. So when we're talking Molinism, people might not understand what we're talking about. We maybe should have mentioned this earlier, not uh, hindsight 2020. So sorry to any of our listeners. But what is, how would you describe Molinism and how would you explain middle knowledge for people who don't understand these, these terms that we're not using? Yeah, so Molinism is derived from uh, the last name of a Spanish uh, theologian uh, from the 16th century named Luis de Molina. So Molina is where we get Molinism. And, uh, and so really, uh, the purpose of my book was to talk about, okay, um, what's, uh, what's essential for mere Molinism? To take a, a page out of uh, the book of you know C.S. Lewis's book *Mere Christianity*, he talks about basically what you need for mere Christianity to be true is one statement to be true that God raised Jesus from the dead. That requires two things: the existence of God and uh, a historical resurrection, which is really pretty cool because we have evidence for the existence of God and we can make a historical case for the resurrection. So uh, we can demonstrate, uh, logically demonstrate that mere Christianity is true. And I thought, okay, what do we need for mere Molinism to be true? And I, I said it earlier, we need, uh, number one, humans to possess libertarian free will, at least sometimes, and, and in some things. And it doesn't mean that I have to have it for all things, right? Uh, I, I know some people who would say that we don't have it when it comes to salvation issues or soteriolo soteriological matters. I think we do. But for the sake of argument, somebody can say, no, we don't have it when it comes to salvation issues, but we do have it in things of this world, as Calvin and Luther would say. And I write about this in my book, even Calvin and Luther and Philip Melanchthon, these great uh, theologians of the Reformation, um, are, are clear that we have uh, the ability to uh, do otherwise, even, I, I would say, in uh and things that aren't related to salvation issues or things of the world. Like, you know, I, one of them said, I can, I can choose to throw a rock or to hold on to it or put it in my pocket. So libertarian freedom, one way that I define it is if I ever have an ability to choose between or among a range of alternative options that are each compatible with my nature at a given moment, then I possess libertarian freedom. And it's clear that, uh, that these reformed theologians uh, did believe that, even if they didn't think we had that ability when it when it comes to salvation issues. So mere Molinism, you at least have to be able to, to have the freedom. Uh, if you're ever not causally determined by something or someone else, then you've got libertarian freedom. And I go on to say, if you, if you have an ability to choose between or among a range of alternative options, each of which is compatible with your nature at a given moment, then you've got libertarian freedom. And there's times when I argue for that second ability, but even if I can't show that, but I can demonstrate that you're not causally determined in a certain instance, then you've got libertarian freedom there. So anyway, so that's the first thing you need for mere Molinism to be true is uh, for humans to possess libertarian freedom, at least occasionally. Uh, now, the next thing you need for mere Molinism is that God's got to possess middle knowledge. So what is middle knowledge? In a nutshell, middle knowledge is the counterfactual knowledge that God possesses logically prior to his creative decree. 
So it's really that simple. If you want to just memorize one sentence so you can answer that when somebody says, hey, what's middle knowledge? It's the counterfactual knowledge that God possesses logically prior to his creative decree. So I like to remember it like this. God knows everything that could, would, and will happen. And middle knowledge brings the would. All right, that's something else you can remember. All right, God knows an omniscient God knows everything that could, would, and will happen. And middle knowledge brings the would, the, what would happen. That's God's middle knowledge. So, all right, so here's another way to think about it. God knows everything that he could create. We call this God's natural knowledge, right? God knows everything he could do. Uh, think about it like the, with the fine-tuning argument in mind. God knows all the different ways that he could fine-tune the initial conditions of the Big Bang. And, and so he, he, an omnipotent God has options, right? An omnipotent God, he's omnipotent. That's omnipotential. There is, uh, he, he can do everything logically possible. Now, that, you know, it stands to reason then that there's a whole bunch of things that God could do that he never does. <laughs> but God's middle knowledge then, well, okay, so God knows everything he could do. God knows all that would happen if he created one way or another. Now, that's middle knowledge. So God knows everything that he could create. That's natural knowledge. But God's middle knowledge is focused on this. God knows all that would happen if he created one way or another. And that includes all that would freely happen or all that would happen that God doesn't causally determine in these circumstances. So we could even apply this to quantum mechanics. Um, uh, many physicists believe that uh, the, the quantum realm is not causally determined like the rest of nature. Well, okay. If that's the case, is God still sovereign over these uh, quantum events? Um, I believe he is, and I think middle knowledge is the way to do that. Uh, um, but uh, but this would then include free decisions made by creatures with libertarian freedom. So God would know all that would happen if he created one way or another. That means that God would know how I would freely choose if he created Tim Stratton in a freedom-permitting circumstance. Okay, now it also means that God knows um, if he gave Chewbacca free will, how Chewbacca would freely choose the Wookiee, right? How Chewbacca the Wookiee would freely choose in a freedom permitting circumstance. And that means even if God never created Chewbacca, he would still know how Chewie would freely choose in a freedom permitting circumstance. That got tongue twisty. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> how Chewbacca would choose. How Chewie would choose, right? So, um, so that means that God knew he has the power to create Chewie, but he never did actually create him, probably. <laughs> and But he still knew how Chewie would freely choose. Now, he didn't have to create me. He didn't have to create Tim Stratton, but he knew that if he gave Tim Stratton libertarian freedom and put Tim Stratton in a freedom-permitting circumstance, he knew how Tim Stratton would freely choose if he created me and even if he never did create me. Well, guess what? God 
chooses one of the things he could to, he could do. He chose to create Tim Stratton, give me libertarian freedom, and put me in a freedom-permitting circumstance. Now, do I do anything that catches God off guard? Do I surprise God in any way, or does God learn? No, because God knew everything I was going to freely do logically prior to my existence and chose to create me anyway. So now God knows all that will happen, including all that will freely happen. So check it out. God knows everything he could do. Uh, he knows all that uh, Tim, he knows what Tim would freely do in a freedom permitting circumstance. Then he creates Tim in a freedom permitting circumstance. Now he knows all that Tim will freely choose in a freedom permitting circumstance. So uh, all that happens is God knows what Tim would freely do. Then he creates, and now God knows all that Tim will freely do. So all that happens is the word would changes to will, but the word freely doesn't go anywhere. So God's knowledge of all that will happen is called his free knowledge. So we've got God's natural knowledge, all that he could do, God's middle knowledge, all that would happen if he created one way or the other, and all that uh, God's free knowledge is all that will happen in the actual world. Uh, and that includes all that will freely happen. So I know that's a lot. Uh, we've got these logical moments of knowledge and that can get kind of confusing, but just remember, uh, that God knows all he could do, all that would happen if, and all that will happen. And middle knowledge is focused on all the would happen if. That makes perfect sense, at least to me. So, and that's why, uh, <laughs> you, you make very clear in your book that, uh, to be a mirror Molinist does yeah. not mean you have to lose your uh, Calvinism or to lose your, uh, well, to a degree. You, you, I like that little eyebrow twitch you made there. <laughs> but you're, you're a little, uh, but you don't have to lose, you know, your Reformed thinking. You don't have to lose fully your Arminian thinking either. It's actually, that's the thing about mere Molinism is that there is some flexibility there. Now, yeah. granted, oh, go, oh, go ahead, go ahead. You, I was just going to say, I show in my book, you can be a five-point Calvinist and a mere Molinist simultaneously. Uh, you you cannot be what I was, though, an exhaustive divine determinist. That doesn't work. But right. in my book, I show that that view is false. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And plus, I mean, you know, and there are some things I w would say that, you know, I'm not obviously not a tulip guy, so I frustrate a lot of people with that. But it's like the cool thing to be right now is the, is the, is the tulip guy, and I'm just, I'm just not. But— um, well. Yeah, as you know, sorry to interrupt, but as you know, I do spend some time in my book uh, explaining why the the eye of tulip is false. I think Molinism provides something that's functionally equivalent, but it operates differently, and so it's not logically incoherent um, or right. biblically incoherent. And so I think tulip. I mean, to use the word irresistible is is wrong. So I think irresistible grace fails. I spend a lot of time, I argue against it, deductively conclude that it, that irresistible grace is false. So I'm not a tulip guy either, but for those that are committed to tulip, I show, okay, fine, keep your tulip if you'd like. Uh, you can also be a mere Molinist. So I try right. to build a bridge there. Well, and, it's, and it does work. That's why I, you know, I think one of the reasons why I think your book is effective that way is that because it does show it. it shows both ways that you could go with it. And that's what's mm -hmm. kind of cool. It's not just like, oh, you better take Molinism, hook, line, and sinker and force it down your throat. It's like, nope, let me show you where it's flexible. And then let me show you where Molinism can get 
you can get more into Molinism if you choose to run with it. I do right. believe that uh, actually it's funny because the I and irresistible grace is actually the exact letter I have the most issue with as well. So it's funny. Um, I guess real quick for our listeners who might not know, does irresistible require determinism? Do you think? It seems to me that that, well, it doesn't require exhaustive divine determinism. Uh, but uh, I mean, Greg Kokel is a good example. I think he would say, um, I mean, he affirms libertarian freedom when it comes to rationality and, and reason-based knowledge, uh, just like I do. He would affirm uh, you know, things like the free-thinking argument. Um, but he believes that when it comes to salvation, we're causally determined by God um, via irresistible grace. So I do uh, see uh, the I, if it's irresistible, I mean, if God zaps you, as it were, um, you have no ability to do other than to be saved, to be regenerated, right? right? Exactly. So it, it does seem to me to be a causal determinism, right? Um, I and I, re- I reject that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And Greg Kalko, by the way, uh, if y'all haven't read his tactics book and you want to get into apologetics, that's probably the best place to start. That was like. Yep way further down the line than when I read that book. And I was like, why didn't I start here? This would have been way easier. Yeah, uh, I agree. So, um, all right. So the, one of the biggest things I get uh, as far as objections to Molinism is the fact that it's largely philosophical and it's not biblical. And I'm sure you as the, now the mere Molinist man, uh, I'm sure, is that a title we could run with? We need to make that a meme because he has like, he has the best marketing for his book ever because it's all memes and I love it. But uh, so, uh, but since you're the mere Molinism man, uh, would you say that that such a claim that it's not biblical, it holds up? Oh, not at all. Uh, in fact, I got sick and tired of people saying that. So I said, okay, I'm going to start with scripture in my book. Um, and you know, Molina himself, uh, built his case on scripture. Um, so it wasn't really hard. I mean, the, the first chapter of my book is talking about uh, hermeneutics, really, and uh, what is truth, what is reality, how do we, how can we come to know truth and reality, how do we interpret scripture? And so I talk about uh, what's important um, when it comes to hermeneutics. And, uh, you know, I should read you, let's see if I can find it really quick, uh, from the first chapter in my book, a nice passage from... Uh, Grant Osborne, let me see, apologize. Okay, um, so this is talking about when it comes to hermeneutics, you have to understand rational principles and logic. And this is what Grant Osborne ha- had to say, the late and great Grant Osborne. He said, the theologian must truly be a Renaissance person, for it is necessary to exegete the scriptures collate the theological threads via biblical theology, be aware of the development of dogma throughout church history, then contextualize all this for the modern situation. And at each stage, philosophical reasoning plays a critical role. In a very real sense, the theologian is asked to be an expert exegete, historian, and philosopher. Philosophy, he says, helps the theologian to avoid subjective reasoning and to ground theological formulations and critical reasoning, coherence, and rationality. Well, let me skip a bunch here, and he ends with this. He says, most theologians today argue that inductive and deductive methods must be integrated in constructing 
theological systems. And that is uh, a philosophy and namely logic. So when somebody says, oh, Molinism is just too philosophical, I say, well, what do you mean by philosophical? Do you mean it's too logical? Because truth and logic are inextricably linked. You cannot have one without the other. And so if Christianity is true, it will be extremely logical. It'll be, I mean, uh, it, it will be too logical if, if it is. I mean, that's like saying Christianity is too true. What does that even mean? Uh, what does it mean to say that Christianity is too logical? Yes, if it's true, it will be logically coherent, even if you can't figure it out. But why well, think that we can't figure it out? You know, um, so yeah, it takes some hard, rigorous thinking at times, but why think that God should be just so easy to understand all, all the time? I'm thankful that the gospel is easy to understand. I understood it at three years old, right? But why think that everything about God and how he operates should be easy to understand? Why, why think that we shouldn't have to put some hard work into it to connect some theological dots logically? Yes, if Christianity is true, it will be logical and uh and so why think that, I mean, to say that that's an objection just doesn't make any sense to me. It's too logical. Well, okay, then it's too true. I, whatever. I, I, uh, I, I, think, it, I have to think it as a compliment. So, yeah. yeah, no, it's funny. I, uh, a guy I work with, he's a, he's a Christian man, but he's always just like, well, you know, the Christianity is not logical. So we got to stop depending on our own logic. And every time he says, that, I'm like, no, it's true. Cause it's like this whole, like he does the whole, you can't, you know, don't depend on your own understanding. And it's about as far as it goes and just the basic death, burial, resurrection. And then he's like, oh yeah, I just got taken on faith. I'm like, no, Christianity is logical. It makes sense. It is what you reason with people. But it's funny because like uh, so many people bought this blind walk by faith thing. And it's like, yeah, I don't think you understand what the Bible means by faith. Faith means to trust in the Bible, yeah. not just yeah. vain belief. But anyway, mm -hmm. yes, uh, absolutely. So what are some, do you have some biblical passages uh, that yeah. we could pull from real quick just to kind of show your point? You can exegete mm -hmm. real quick and then we'll deal with some basic objections to Molinism. Yeah, yeah. So I guess, I, you know, I started, my first chapter was about how to do hermeneutics, how to, how to interpret scripture. Second chapter is all about scripture. And I didn't even take uh, a position in, in that chapter. I just said, look, this is why many people uh, think that uh, determinism is true across the board. And I said, this is why here's some uh, passages, a whole bunch of passages uh, that have led people to think throughout the centuries that we actually have some, what we call now libertarian freedom. Um, uh, but uh, verses that support middle knowledge. Well, let's start here. In First uh, Samuel 23, 6 through 14, uh, to summarize that, I won't read the whole passage to you, but God lets David know a truth to a counterfactual position. So this means that God has counterfactual knowledge. Uh, so namely, that if David were to stay at Kaliah, then Saul would pursue him. And that if Saul were to pursue him, then the men of Kaliah would give him over to Saul, right? But David gets the heck out of Dodge, so that never happens. So that's counterfactual knowledge that God gives David. Um, Jeremiah 38, 17, and 18 uh, provides support for God's counterfactual knowledge. This passage makes it clear that God knows what would happen Remember, 
middle knowledge brings the wood. So the, so God knows what would happen no matter what course of action Zedekiah would choose to take. Um, additionally, uh, consider the test of a true prophet. Uh, that is the fulfillment of his predictions. We see that in Deuteronomy 18.22. So the test of a true prophet is the fulfillment of his predictions. But think about this. Many predictions given by biblical prophets are never fulfilled because the people who these prophecies were delivered to, um, they responded by changing their lives, right? We see this, this is like uh, uh, Scrooge and the ghost of Christmas future, right? The ghost (laughs) of Christmas future tells Scrooge what's going to happen, shows him the future. And then Scrooge is like, forget that I'm changing my life. And so those prophecies, those predictions don't come true. Uh, well, are we going to say that the ghost of Christmas future was a bad prophet then? I know he was saying, look, if you stay on this course of action, this, this way of living Scrooge, then that's what's going to happen. This is what uh, would happen if you continue to live that way. But we see passages like this in scripture in Isaiah 38, one through five, Amos 7, 1 through 6, Jonah 3, 1 through 10. I encourage people to go read them. Right? So it follows then that the people who chose to change their lives avoided the consequences of what would have happened if they had not changed direction, if they had not changed their lives like Scrooge did. Um, okay, so this is more uh, counterfactual knowledge. Uh, that uh, that God has or that he has provided prophets. So on top of that, because prophets don't just get their knowledge apart, or God, I should say prophets get their knowledge from God, right? So uh, the, the source of the prophet's knowledge has to have this counterfactual knowledge. On top of that, Jesus makes many statements uh, that suggest that he has counterfactual knowledge. You can start with John 15, uh, 22, uh, 24, uh, basically, that uh, says, if uh, Jesus said, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. And then he says, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not have sinned. All right. So uh, there's, that seems to be counterfactual. In John 18, 36, Jesus offered the following counterfactual knowledge claim. He says, if my kingdom were of this world, My followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. And in Matthew 26, verse 24, uh, Jesus says, Woe to that one by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that one not to have been born. Uh, So I could go on. There are many passages in Scripture that seem to affirm that God has counterfactual Knowledge, but the question is okay, counterfactual knowledge is great, but does God have middle knowledge? So the question hinges upon when God logically possesses counterfactual knowledge, right? So, does God have this counterfactual knowledge uh, before or logically prior to his creative decree or and his? creative act, or does God create the world and then gain knowledge of it, right? So is God ignorant of what would happen, then creates and then learns, right? Do we have a learning God or is God a maximally great being? 
who's always omniscient. Mm -hmm. (laughs) If God owns, if God owns this counterfactual knowledge uh, from eternity past, and and thus causally before His creative decree to choose to actualize this specific actual world, then then God, by definition, has middle knowledge. So that is to say, if God is is eternally omniscient, right? That, that, that is to say, if God is omniscient without beginning, then God must possess middle knowledge. Now, uh, this gets philosophical because the Bible never says God possesseth middle knowledge, right? But guess what? The Trinity is philosophical. Uh, I mean, so true. Right. That coming to the conclusion that God is a Trinity is based on philosophy because the Bible never says that God's a Trinity either. Right. The Bible never says that God possesseth middle knowledge and the Bible never says that God is a Trinity. <laughs> Be that as it may, the Bible, uh, you can in- logically infer both from the Bible that God is a Trinity and that God possesses middle knowledge. So, yeah, in, in a nutshell, uh, yeah, we do have uh, reason, biblical reason uh, to think that humans possess libertarian freedom. I didn't share those uh, passages, uh, but I point people to my book. Um, and uh, we have biblical reason to think that God possesses counterfactual knowledge. And so it's just one more step. Does God learn, right? Or is God always omniscient, as it were? <laughs> Does, <laughs> is God eternally omniscient? Uh, if God is uh, a maximally great being who is always omniscient, uh, then that includes logically prior to creation, then God possesses middle knowledge. Absolutely. And that's actually why it's, it's um, that's exactly what got me when I got into it. It's like a, a lot of the if then statements in scripture was like, yeah. huh. And Braxton put it well when he was on the channel. It's like, okay, well, he said if or then or would, is God a liar? And you're like, well, mm-hmm. well, well, no. Okay, then counterfactual middle knowledge yeah. must be a thing. And then, yeah. so, uh, you know, I like the way that is where there's a lot of, I think, Acts 17, especially toward the end of Acts 17, is probably one of the best places to show that mankind has free will, where it says perhaps even feel their way toward God. In, in the end, he's, no, he's not very far from each of us. So there's a lot of parts in the oh. Bible that show libertarian freedom as well. And, of course, we know that God separated the end from the beginning as well. So here we are. Molinism seems to fit very well with the biblical data and so, and I think if people really want to know this better, really well, um, you should pick up Dr. Stratton's book. So one of some of the things that I've heard people object to, we, we don't have to spend a lot of time here, but I think it would be important to kind of hit a couple of them because people start thinking that Molinism just keeps deferring to like ad nauseum, just keeps one thing's logically prior to this thing, one thing's logically prior to the next thing. So uh, the other thing to say, like if someone uh, like I know isn't saved in this world, does that mean he's not saved in any possible world? How would you respond to something like that? Uh, yeah. So uh, first of all, uh, if if someone freely chooses to reject God's love and grace in this world, it does not mean that there is no possible world in which this person chooses to not resist God's love and grace. Um, but but I'll say, but possible worlds come cheap. Um, so let's think about let's think about Richard Dawkins, for example. Um, if Richard Dawkins possesses libertarian freedom and has the ability to freely choose 
to eternally resist or not resist God's love and amazing grace. Then, even if Richard Dawkins freely chooses to eternally reject God's love and grace, it was still possible for him to not resist and be saved, right? So, if it's even possible, then that means that a possible world exists where Richard Dawkins is saved. Be that as it may, just because it's possible for Richard Dawkins to be saved, it does not mean that this possible world is feasible for God to create. All right, so yeah, sorry, we're getting into more philosophy here. But that is to say, if Richard Dawkins always freely chooses to resist and reject God's love and grace whenever and wherever God creates them in a freedom-permitting circumstance, then it's logically impossible for God to create a world uh, or a freedom-permitting circumstance where Richard Dawkins freely chooses to not resist God's love and grace, which inevitably inevitably leads to salvation. So remember, omnipotence, a, a good definition of omnipotence is that God can do all things possible or that God can do all things logically possible possible. But it's logically impossible, uh, or it could be logically impossible for God to uh, create Richard Dawkins in a freedom-permitting circumstance, and then uh, Richard Dawkins freely choose to accept God's love and grace, right? It's It doesn't make any sense to say that God could causally determine Richard Dawkins to freely accept God's love, right? That's incoherent nonsense. Um, so I think there's something, uh, to this. And I think maybe, maybe, uh, your listeners or viewers might hard, might find that hard to think about, but I think it starts to make more sense when we think about Satan, right? Uh, God, um, you know, what, what kind of freedom permitting circumstance could God have, uh, created Satan in, in which Satan, uh, would, would accept, I mean, Think about Satan. Satan was created in a perfect state of affairs and in the very presence of God, yet he still rejected and rebelled against God, right? There, there was no tempter there. And surely, uh, I mean, to, to say that God causally determined Satan to sin makes God the author of evil, not Satan. So you don't want to do that. But man, I mean... What kind of freedom-permitting circumstance could God have created Satan in then, in which Satan would not have freely rejected and re- rebel against God? I mean, it seems to me that Satan is the type of guy who who would reject God's love and grace no matter what world or freedom-permitting circumstance uh, God created him to exist in. So if this, if this kind of thing is true about Satan, then why can't it be true of Richard Dawkins or Stephen Hawking or Christopher Hitchens or anybody else. Now, of course, God could causally determine Satan and Richard Dawkins to not resist his love and grace, but then we've got other problems. That's not true love. It's not maximal love, not the kind of love that God wants. Uh, you know, it's, it's not, it's not the, the kind of love that, uh, well, I, I would just say once God causally determines somebody, uh, to not be able to resist him. Uh, that just doesn't seem to be love at all. And according to Jesus, that's exactly what God wants with humanity, true love. 
It's the purpose of our existence. I mean, you look at the entire law, Jesus summarizes it in two simple and easy to remember commands. Everybody love God and everybody love everybody, basically. Even the, even <laughs> animals love them, right? So it's all about love. That's why we exist. Now, I argue in my book and quite a bit on my website that true love requires libertarian freedom. And I give several reasons for this. Um, but I guess that's... Uh, in a, in a nutshell, uh, to answer the, your question about possible worlds, um, just because it's possible doesn't mean it's logically uh, possible for God to create once you factor in free will. So to say that God creates free creatures, even though it's possible for a free creature to act otherwise, if they never do act otherwise, right? If Satan has free will and no matter where God puts them, no matter where God creates Satan, if Satan always freely chooses to rebel and reject God, to rebel against God, then can God create a world where Satan ever freely chooses to accept God's love? No, not where Satan freely chooses. God can make him, right? God could force him <laughs> to, to not reject him. But that's not what God wants with us. He wants true love. So uh, anyway, I don't know. If, does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Because, uh, you know, essentially, yeah, forced. What good is love if it's forced, right? Uh, in it's fact, not we, love at all. Exactly. We, we tend to arrest people for that sort of thing. Uh, yeah, that's called rape. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, that's actually uh, a really great, great point. And I think that's the thing that I've always mentioned. It's like, yeah, well, just because, you know, it's logically possible. I always, uh, I like to say feasible, I guess. So that's a good way to put it. I always said just because it's possible doesn't mean it's plausible. Like that yeah. person could just be as stubborn or just hate God no matter if they're created. And of course, the next objection is why would God create that person then? Could he just not create them? Uh, yeah, he doesn't have to create anybody. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, people say, well, why create those who would go to hell in the first place or, or not create an, you know, I think I heard James White say, uh, why not create an infinite number of people? who'd go to heaven, right? Well, to answer the second question first, that would be because it's not feasible to do so. Uh, uh, you know, um, whether it's, uh, first of all, it'd be logically impossible for God to create an actual infinite. I've heard God could create an infinite amount of people to go to heaven. Like, well, first of all, you can't create an infinite, infinite amount of anything. That's something that's logically impossible after all. Uh, I mean, it's logically impossible for God to create an actually infinite amount of grains of sand, uh, Smurfs, Wookiees, humans, or anything <laughs> else. Um, uh, after all, God could always create one more of whatever it was he was created. But I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. Um, but let's. But why couldn't God create you know, billions or trillions, 500 trillion humans who all, all be safe? Well, when one understands uh, that the, the essence of salvation— and I discuss this in my book, the essence of salvation is a true love relationship with one's creator, right? There, there's nobody in heaven who doesn't love Jesus. And there's nobody in hell who loves Jesus, right? So, so the essence of salvation, if you are in a true love relationship with Jesus, you're in heaven, you're saved, right? That's what salvation is. It's love, love with your creator. So the essence of salvation is a, a, a true love a maximal love relationship. I've got an article on my website called The Best Kind of Love, and, and that's what it is to be saved. Um, 
So again, when one understands that the essence of salvation is a true love relationship with your creator and then understands that a true love uh, relationship entails libertarian freedom, uh, and I say with on both parties, and again, on that article I just referenced, The Best Kind of Love, I, I really uh, uh, explain this. Um, talk about God's love and our love. Uh, God might not have the ability to not love. He's omnibenevolent after all, um, but it's still free in the libertarian sense because nothing is causally determining God to love. But God cannot create humans with a, a nature like his. Um, and so he has to give us the ability to love or not to love. <clears throat> um, he, God can't create uh, other maximally great beings, right? So anyway, I, I point people to that article, The Best Kind of Love on freethinkingministries.com. But uh I'll just say this, if one truly possesses libertarian freedom, then one is free to reject God's love and grace or not. Um, so that's uh, libertarian, uh, uh, that would be the principle of alternative possibilities that are not just sourcehood freedom. But I don't want to get uh, you know caught in those weeds right now. But I'll just say this, if God created 500 trillion humans, who each possessed the libertarian freedom to resist God's love and grace or not, if they really do possess libertarian freedom and God is not causally determining all of their thoughts and actions, then these free agents uh, can freely choose to resist God's grace in these freedom-permitting circumstances. So perhaps God knows that out of these 500 trillion people with libertarian freedom, only one billion of them would freely choose not to resist God's love and grace. So if that's the case, then it would be impossible for God to create a world in which 500 trillion humans freely choose not to resist God's love and grace. Uh, so then the next question arises, well, why would God create the damned in the first place? Why would God create all <laughs> these people that would freely choose uh, to go to hell? Well, the easy answer is that God knew that some atheists, Muslims or Buddhists or whatever non-Christian you've got, that these guys, <laughs> these people, these folks would have children, grandchildren or great-grandchildren who would freely choose to love God in return for eternity, that they would have kids, grandchildren and great-grandchildren who would freely choose not to reject God's love and grace. And they wouldn't have existed without their atheist parents. So uh, I have a good friend that I'll use as an example. He was born and raised in a home with atheist parents. Right? I was blessed. Uh, I was born and raised in a home with awesome Christian parents. Uh, but I've got a good friend, true story, born and raised in a home with atheist parents. Now, uh probably about 10 years ago when I first started getting into apologetics I, I and I was still a youth pastor, I started these breakfasts at a local restaurant. They'd give me the whole back room and we just, you know, I'd call it apologetics and breakfast meetings and open it up to uh, high school and college students, but really to anybody that would want to come. Really cool meetings. I need to start doing that again. But anyway, uh, this young man, this atheist started coming to uh, these apologetics and breakfast meetings uh, at this local restaurant, and he came to argue. Right? Uh, oh, sometimes those are the good ones. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the was frustrating because I was like, okay, I'm 
trying to get through the column and he's not letting me get off of premise one. Um, but we would argue for weeks and weeks, but I'll, I'll never forget it when this young atheist finally said, Tim, the only reason that you're a Christian is because you were born and raised in a Christian household. Well, how do you think I responded? I said, well, then the only reason you're an atheist is because you were born and raised in an atheist household. The only reason you're an atheist is because your parents are atheists. And I said, okay, let's, let's avoid the genetic fallacy and think logically about this. He was a smart kid. Um, and I said, look, God either exists or he does not exist. One of us is wrong. Let's examine the evidence. Well, this young man, he, he soon rejected atheism and, and eventually surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. And, you know, awesome. and some people claim that apologetics doesn't work uh, or that you cannot argue people in the, into the kingdom. Look, I've seen it happen on multiple occasions. Uh, in fact, if you want to see a great article on freethinkingministries.com. It's written by the evolutionary biologist at the University of Nebraska at Kearney here. Uh, she was uh, agnostic, leaning heavily towards atheism. She said she thought atheism was probably true. We argued and argued and argued for uh, probably over a year. And now she's claiming Christ. Uh, and I mean, she does believe in theistic evolution. I know a lot of people uh, don't want to hear that. But hey, do you want the evolutionary uh, biologist... Uh, teaching your kids, uh, telling them that atheism is true or telling them that they believe that God exists or that God exists created uh, through the intelligent design of evolution and raised Jesus from the dead. And so they should keep going to Sunday school. Look, I'll take that all day long. Absolutely. Uh, but anyway, all right, that'll cause, that's maybe another uh, episode of the church split. Um, Actually, one of that that topic of Genesis is coming up here. We're gonna approach the f four or five views of Genesis. So yeah, yeah, I, I got some stuff alert. I can say about that. <laughs> so anyway, I, I digress. I got off topic there. Uh, let's talk about my friend who was born and raised in the atheist uh, household. With, you know, had atheist parents, but then became a Christian. So with my friend in mind, the answer becomes clear. Why would God create his atheist parents? Well, because God knew that if those two atheists got together and had a son, then their son would freely choose to reject their atheistic beliefs and accept Jesus Christ as his personal Lord and Savior. So you got to have the atheist to exist if this Christian is going to exist. Now, one might object to that and say, well, what if an atheist, I mean, sure, okay, they had they had a kid um, that needed that biology and that those genetics and that DNA combo or whatever. But they might say, well, what if an atheist or any non-Christian never has kids? Why would God create him or her? And I think the answer uh, to that is found in the influence that people have on others that goes far beyond one's DNA. I mean, I like to consider my, my spiritual uh, lineage, if you will, uh, to make a, a, a similar point. I like to bring up my grandpa. Right. Uh, his name was uh, Russ Harris, and he he graduated from Harvard at the top of his class and then joined the Fancy. military. Yeah. Right. That's back when Harvard was cool. And actually, <laughs> OK, never mind. Uh, left his hacks. You can say it. It's fine. Yeah, that's right. I'll let you say it. <laughs> okay. um, yeah. But yeah, my graduated. Or my Yeah. My grandpa graduated from Harvard at the top of his class and then joined the military to fight against Hitler in World War II. How cool is that? Um, 
but think about this counterfactual. Right? We're talking about counterfactual knowledge. If it were not for Hitler, then there would not have been a second world war. And then my grandpa's life would have been drastically different. However, it was in this war against Hitler that my grandpa devoted his life to Christ. Now, perhaps God knew that he would not freely devote his life to following Jesus in any other set of freedom-permitting circumstances. I, I don't know, but maybe God knows that. So my grandpa then, he, he became a Christian uh, during World War II, committed his life to Christ, and then passed the gospel message to my mom and then eventually to me. And I'll, I'll tell you, I've been in ministry now since 1998, and I started sharing the gospel well before that. I've shared the gospel message with countless people. I have literally lost track. I don't know how to how to come up with that figure, right? I've shared the gospel message with so many people in some form or fashion, whether it be face-to-face uh, or on Facebook. I used to be in bands. I used to share from the stage all the time in front of so many people all the time. I, I just don't know. Um, so uh, think of all the people that I've shared the gospel with. But let's suppose I've shared the gospel with one million people. And then only a thousand of these folks uh, that, I, that, that I've shared the gospel with have freely chosen to respond and submit their lives to Christ. Now let's suppose that each of them, each of them led a hundred people to Christ. Now, uh, suppose that one of the 100,000 Christians that resulted from my grandpa's conversion in World War II caused by Hitler then led to the next Billy Graham coming to know Jesus Christ personally, who is not a genetic relative to me or my grandpa. Right? So then this guy, the next Billy Graham, goes out and leads another billion people to have a personal relationship with God for eternity. You see, we simply don't understand the importance and influence that our walk has in pointing others to Christ. So, like a fantastic pyramid scheme, the numbers of those escaping eternal hell continues to grow. And this all started because God was willing to create people who he knew would freely choose to reject the gospel. And in this case, it was Hitler of all people. <laughs> You see, God has good reason to create those he knew would freely choose to be damned. However, with that said, God sees, or rather I should say God knows, right, the big picture. Um, with eternity in mind, uh, then this supposed problem melts away. God uses all things, including evil, for eternal good. We see this in Genesis 50 and Romans 8, verse 28. And then and, uh, one of my set or my, one of my favorite passages is 2 Corinthians 4, 17. And I discussed that quite a bit in the, in the last chapter of my book. Yeah, that actually, that, that's kind of the thing that I always get to when it comes to that too. I'm like, well, y you know, God also, we also act like God isn't glorified in punishing evil too. Like as if these people didn't choose their path. Yeah. So I think it's right. funny. So it's like, if God created them, then uh, punishing evil is, we would say is good. Um, and we're all evil. It's just whether or not we freely choose to accept to, to go to Christ. So I, I, anyway, yeah, but also we don't have the big picture. You know, I always say like, you know, we yep. are, if, if the universe is one giant canvas that God has painted, we're in like a tiny little brushstroke and we don't see the rest of it. So we don't know how it's all interconnected, 
but yeah. that's why he's God and I'm not. <laughs> that's right. So uh, I think that's I think that's fantastic. And you know, these are these these various things that come up when people discuss Molinism. But uh, honestly, it comes down to in, no matter who what your doctrine is, you still run into a lot of these same problems. Even if it's exhaustive divine determinism, then you still have to ask, well, why would God causally make the Holocaust happen anyway? Like it's so a lot of the same problems arise, but they just don't have access to the same logical answer. Am I making sense yeah. on that? I think I'm tracking with you. Okay. I th yeah. He's in other words, he's like, this guy's kind of dumb, but I think I get what he's saying. No. No. <laughs> I'm just messing that's with you. It. But you know, like bless things like, like I've always wondered that with Calvinism when they're like, well, okay, well why would, you know, if they object to me, with Molinism on believing in free will. Well, why would God create this universe then? It's like, well, everyone's got to answer that question with evil. That still goes on to the problem of evil. Why would people go to hell? Uh, every single theological system has to answer that question. So uh, I don't know. I don't find it a strong objection to Molinism if every theological right. system has to answer it. Am I making yeah, sense? And, <laughs> yeah, and I think Molinism uh, makes sense of hell. Uh, and... Yeah, I, I spend a lot of time uh, talking about hell and uh, even why universalism doesn't make sense in my book. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I don't think hell makes sense on Calvinism or on exhaustive divine determinism or even on Tulip. Uh, just to, That's one of the reasons why I reject the eye of Tulip. Um, and I have uh, a, an argument, a deductive syllogism based on hell and God being a maximally great being. Um, and, uh, and looking at irresistible grace and, uh, factoring in, um, uh, God's omni attributes, uh, which deductively concludes then that, uh, uh, well, let's see, is that one, I think that one, uh, reaches the abductive inference that Molinism is true or that Molinism is the inference of the best explanation after considering all the data. Um, but it does conclude that irresistible grace or exhaustive divine determinism is false. Um, so I'd point people to, uh, there also on my website, I have a, an article. I wrote it a long time ago. Uh, even when I was still a youth pastor, but I, I published it early on after starting free thinking ministries. Um, and it's called true love, free will, and the logic of hell. Um, so I really think that, uh, you know, and I, I take a Molinist approach there. I really think that Molinism is the, uh, it's definitely the best. It might be the only, but it's definitely the best way uh, to understand uh, this eternal separation from God and all that's good. So I would agree. And that was kind of my whole thing with Molinism in general. It makes sense of a lot of things. So, yeah. the, so um, I guess uh, my closing question for you at the end, and we ask this for everybody because our main theme here, as mentioned before, is getting people to escape echo chambers, but also what are some dividing topics? What are some difficult topics that people struggle with in the church, causes church splits? Brothers and sisters of Christ hate each other. Everyone's at each other's throats. We've all been there. Uh, we've always punched someone. In, we've all punched someone in the face out of the love for Jesus. Just kidding. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, so with such a divided body of, of believers, uh, what do you believe that your ministry here, how do you believe that could help unite a divided body? Uh, I really think that, uh, that my book, um, especially in chapter 15, I, I, I go to great lengths to, to build a bridge between uh, Calvinists and 
those who would reject Calvinism, <laughs> whether it be Arminians or, or just Molinists in general. I really, I mean, that's why I argue for the mere Molinism. And I grant for the sake of argument, even though I reject Tulip, I'll grant it to those who are committed to Tulip. If they really sincerely believe uh, that five-point Calvinism is true, I'll grant that to them and say, okay, look, I'll give you that, but let's look at what the Reformers taught about free will. And now how is God sovereign over these free decisions, even if they're not related to salvation issues? Um, is God surprised by these free choices? Uh, and if not, then middle knowledge is the only way to make sense of it. And so you can still be a five-point Calvinist and a mere Molinist. And once we start to, you know, once that bridge, uh, you know, there, there, is a, there has been a church split uh, for 500 years or so. And that bridge allows brothers and sisters in Christ uh, to commune again. And so uh, that's really one of the, the main goals of my book. It wasn't to be a, uh, um, I mean, I, look, I, uh, there, there's, in fact, I share a conversation in that chapter. I'm not going to look it up right now, but it, uh, I didn't name his name, but a, a Calvinist theologian. And, uh, and I, you know, I, I said, okay, Tim said this, Cal, Calvinist said this. And I show at the end of the conversation, how we're on the same page and could both affirm. Yeah, that's so. right. That was hilarious. That was fantastic. At the, I, I forgot about that conversation in there. Yeah, that was, that was a great, yeah. Cause at the end you're like, okay, so you're a Molinist. And I was like, got him. Yeah. But uh, yeah, no, well, uh, real quick, Tim, is there anything else you wanted to add before we closed? Oh, uh, you know, I just encourage people uh, to get, to get my book and to read it. And, you know, it's a great Christmas present. You can get people too. So it's a great <laughs> Christmas present. Yeah. You can get it on Amazon. You, uh, you and I have the, uh, the paperback here, but they are making a hardcover what? version of it now. And, uh, yeah, it's really pretty cool. Uh, the hardcover version. I might just order the hardcover just so I can have it in hardcover. <laughs> <laughs> and, dude, there's some people that are getting them and sending it to me, asking me to sign it. For a Christmas present and then send it back to him. So I am doing that. <laughs> I think cool. that's crazy. It's weird. Uh, but what's well, what um, happens when you publish a, a, Yeah, it's what happens when you publish a book and suddenly you're like a normal average dude and now suddenly you're kind of like famous. It's weird, right? Like Yeah. Well, famous in a very small circle of nerds. Um, but I feel attacked. <laughs> nerd is a good thing these days. It's good to be a nerd. Yeah, um, I always say that I missed being the cool part of being nerd by like five years. I was yeah, still right, a bad right. thing when I was a kid. <laughs> so yeah, but I'll tell you this: uh, you know, the hardcover is forty bucks. This one's I think twenty seven now. Uh, but you can get get the Kindle version for only nine ninety nine. So that's the way to go. Uh, but I can't autograph that. So, well, I can, I guess, but, um, <laughs> autograph the screen, um, with a Sharpie, but, uh, um, so I'd encourage people to do that. Uh, go to freethinkingministries.com, uh, check out what we've got there. Uh, but really I've been doing a lot of work on YouTube. So go to, go to YouTube, search for free thinking ministries, and please hit that subscribe button. That helps us out a ton. And share it with others. So and smash that like button too. Tell smash YouTube, it. <laughs> tell YouTube you want more free thinking ministries. We'll leave all that information, including a link to the book, in the description below this video. All my audio listeners, go to the video and just go grab it. Like just go 
do the thing. Help help <laughs> Dr. Stratton out, get the word out, and you too might be a mirror Molinist. So oh, yeah. uh, anyway, guys, thank you all for listening. Thank you, those who watched. And Dr. Stratton, thank you so much for your time. And guys, uh, again, as you guys know, if you have experienced a church split, uh, please contact us if you want to talk about it. We'd love to have you on the channel and talk about how you think we can help avoid the division in the church. And uh, go ahead and comment below your thoughts on mere Molinism. Do you think it's smart? Do you think it makes sense? Or do you think we're a bunch of idiots who are just plain intellectuals? So let us know <laughs> in the comments below. And thank you all for tuning in to The Church Split.